I really wanted to stay in Mark 13 a little longer, talk about the second coming of Jesus. We finished out that chapter on Wednesday night, talked as you know about it quite a bit last week, and it is so exciting and so encouraging to go through that and to consider the days that we're in and and to see them from God's perspective, and also just to be on the alert. Well, the story we're going to look at this morning as we begin Mark 14 is another story of being on the alert. A story where I believe one person was on the alert while everybody else was clueless and missing it. And so it's a story very similar to Mark 13 as we begin at the beginning of Mark 14. Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him. For they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of people. If you read this story and you read the parallel story in John chapter 12, you will note a distinct difference. Mark says the Passover and the unleavened bread were two days away. John says six days away. And so we have a contradiction. We have a little problem. And how do we figure that out and and how do we reconcile the two? And I will explain that on Wednesday night. So you can come back and hear that then. So picking up with verse 3. While he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper and reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume of pure nard. And she broke the vial and poured it over his head. But some were indignantly remarking to one another, why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor, and they were scolding her. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you bother her? She's done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you wish, you can do good to them, but you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Father, I thank you that you recorded this story not once, but three times in the gospels that we might remember her, that this story might be told of her, just Jesus as you said it would, again and again. And here we are 2,000 years later, and we are recalling the story again. And it truly is an honor to this woman for what she did. But may we see the greater honor in you. May we not just view this woman or the other characters in this narrative, but may we see Jesus and understand you more. And... Honestly, Lord, may we end up more desirous of being at Your feet in everything we do. Holy Spirit, teach us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, many of you know the perfect gift can be difficult to find. Right? Sometimes you labor to give something very meaningful, something very special, and you see it the next year turn up at a white elephant gift exchange. How many of you are are planning to be involved, by the way, with a white elephant gift exchange this holiday season? Anybody know you're going to do one of those things? A few of you are. You're you're sheepish. You're like, yeah, I'm I'm doing one of those. You know what that actually means? A white elephant gift. I looked it up because I do these things. Usually we think of it as junk. You know, stuff that we have out in the garage or in storage, and so we pull it out. Weird pre-owned gifts lying around the house. You know, gathering dust 
in the attic. The truth is, this idiomatic phrase literally means a gift or a possession that is more trouble than it's worth. 17th century South Asian culture believed this whole idea about the white elephant in Thailand, Burma, Cambodia. They believed that the white elephant was holy and therefore had to be very specially cared for, very expensive, and usually they were ruinous because a king or a leader, if he really wanted to dig at his steward or servants, would give them a white elephant. And once you're gifted with a white elephant, you couldn't get rid of it because it was holy. So you had to take care of it, but it had to eat special food. And all the care and, and nurture of a white elephant was, well, usually it just it trashed somebody. It took everything that they had. So that's what's behind a white elephant gift exchange. But sometimes the pre-owned gift is the best. It's the best one to give. It's the perfect gift. While pre-packaged stuff is actually the junk that's a burden. When Jesus was about a year old, he received three gifts. You know the story. Magi came from the east bearing strange gifts to give a baby. Matthew 2 verse 11 says, After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother. And they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And we've talked about this many times over the years. Gold is obviously a gift of honor to a king. And frankincense, a gift of worship for a priest. A prayerful gift. Myrrh was a burial spice for a dead man. And so these three gifts for a king, a priest, and a man who would die are perfect for the infant Jesus. I'd like to point this out. In the coming kingdom, similar gifts are going to be brought to Jesus as well. Isaiah 60 verse 6 tells us, A multitude of camels will cover you, the young camels of Midian and Aphah. All those from Sheba will come. They will bring gold and frankincense and will bear good news of the praises of the Lord. Gold and frankincense, but no myrrh because the death that he died, he died once. And now he lives forever. So those were interesting gifts given back then. And whether or not the Magi's myrrh, I think about that myrrh, was that myrrh actually used on the body of Jesus? Perhaps it was. You know, maybe Mary held on to it all through the years and it was used to anoint Jesus' body for burial. But whether or not we know that it was another strange but perfect burial gift was given to Jesus just before His death. And that's the story we have before us this morning. Again, while He was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, And reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial, a very costly perfume of pure nard, and she broke the vial and poured it over his head. Who is this feminine purveyor of fine perfume? According to John's Gospel, it was Mary. It was Mary. Not Mary Magdalene, not Mary the mother of Jesus, but it's the same Mary who sat at Jesus' feet while her sister Martha furiously served. Remember the story? Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. The same Mary whose brother Lazarus had been raised by Jesus from the dead. John chapter 11 tells that story. And the same Mary who very possibly had a leper for a father. A leper for a father? Why is that? Well, the house belongs to Simon the leper. This is Simon the leper's house. And John tells us Martha is serving dinner there while the recently resurrected Lazarus is kicking back with Jesus at the table. 
So you have Martha and Mary and Lazarus all in the house of Simon the leper. Martha's serving. Now some have said perhaps Simon the leper was Martha's husband, but there's more indication to think that Simon the leper was probably father to Martha and Mary and Lazarus. And I find that intriguing. This is the only story in all of the New Testament where Simon the leper is named. Now the story is told three times, so we see him named two of those three times, but this is his house, and it's the only time we see him. But as I read this, I wondered, is it possible that we have met Simon the leper before? Perhaps back in Mark chapter 1, verse 40. When a leper came to Jesus beseeching him and falling on his knees before him and saying, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And moved with compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Could that have been Simon? Is it possible? And we can only speculate. We can't know for sure whether or not he was. But we can make a good guess that all indications are that Simon the leper was a used-to-be. That he used to be a leper, but was no more. The hints here that Jesus had already healed Simon the leper are very strong. The familiarity of both Matthew and Mark as they talk about Simon the leper. So apparently, by the time Matthew and Mark both wrote their accounts of the Gospel, the church knew who Simon the leper was. They had some familiarity with this guy. So just to throw out the name Simon the leper, oh yeah, that's right, that's Simon. We know who he is. The informality of friends and family dining at Simon the leper's house. Now think about that. Hey, party tonight at Simon the leper's. (laughs) You know I got that other engagement. I'm not going to. I got the white elephant gift exchange. I'm going to. So I can't do that right now. I mean, who would go to that unless? Simon the leper used to be a leper, but was no more. And when Mary first saw Jesus after the death of her brother Lazarus, she falls at his feet and she cries out, John 11.32, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Martha said the same thing. How would they know that? Perhaps. And again, we speculate. Perhaps it's because Jesus had already healed their dad. And having known that their father was healed, the thought of him coming to heal Lazarus made perfect sense to Mary and Martha. If you had been here, our brother would not have died. By all appearances, however you view this, Simon the leper appears to be a used-to-be, and so are you, and so am I. See, I used to be a sinner. I used to be lost. I used to be without hope. And Paul writes in Ephesians 2, Verse 1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. Verse 4, he says, but God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Now, I give you all that to understand a little more of Mary's heart and where Mary perhaps is coming from. Lazarus, we know as Mary's used to be dead but raised by Jesus' brother. And if in addition, Simon is Mary's used to be dead or used to be a leper but healed by Jesus' father or even brother-in-law, gang, this girl had plenty of reasons to love Jesus. Plenty of reasons to love Him. I mean, look at what He had done for her and her family. Do you love Jesus? Why do you love Jesus? 
Do you love Him because of what He's done for you lately? And what if He hasn't done anything for you lately? Do you still love Him as much as perhaps the last time something blessed happened in your life? A father healed, maybe, or a a dead brother raised. Honestly, I think Mary, though she loved Jesus and she had good reason to love Jesus, I think she loved Jesus for a greater reason than any of these. Another woman, not Mary, in another uh, Simon's house, not the leper, but the Pharisee, came and anointed Jesus at a different time in his ministry. Luke chapter 7, verse 44. And Jesus said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins which are many have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he was forgiven little, loves little. And the truest reason that anyone should love Jesus, does love Jesus, is forgiveness. It is who He is. It is more than just this instance or this circumstance through which He's worked. It's the fact that He has changed your entire life through forgiveness and through His grace. And for all the ways Mary's family may have been blessed by Jesus, she seems, in every instance we see Mary, she seems just to love Jesus, not for what He's done, but for who He is. Now I want to give you five things to note in this story to jot down as we move through it. And the first one is just this outpouring of love. An outpouring of love. Mary's gift to Jesus, I believe, rivals the Magi's gifts in value and in sensitivity. Three Greek words are used here that describe this perfume. We're told, first of all, that it's costly. It's a costly perfume. The word costly in uh, the Greek is polyutelos, and it means of great price or outlay. Further down, we're told that it's worth over 300 denarii, which is at least a year's wages. Take your annual salary. You know, how many people have that tucked away, and yet that would be the value, the cost of this one vial of perfume. It's pure. That's the other Greek word there, pure, which is pistikos, which means genuine. Genuine. It's, it's the real deal, the real article. By the way, that Greek word, pistikos, the root of it is pistos, which is where we get, or the word that's translated in our Bibles, faith. Faith. I think that's kind of cool. Because faith is genuine. Faith is the real deal. Faith in Jesus is not some religious exercise. Faith in Jesus is not some flighty passion that comes and goes. It's the real deal. You know, it's the same thing Clark was talking about this morning in in marriage. You know, that, that faithfulness is genuine. It's the real article. And you know it because of 34 years that he and Joni have been together and she's still with him. <laughs> the real deal. Peter says in 1 Peter 1.6, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen Him, you'll love Him. Get that. Though you have not seen Him. You haven't even seen Jesus face to face. Not in a physical sense. You haven't reached out and touched His physical face. 
or, or rested your head physically against His chest. You haven't done that. Spiritually, many of you have had great experiences and, have, and, have been, and are very close to Jesus. But you haven't seen His face, and yet you love Him. That's faith. And it is the genuine article. It's pure. It's real. It is of great value. You love Him, and though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Hey, listen, if you have a, a, a brother raised, if you have a father healed, wonderful. But the proof of faith in Jesus is in your love for Jesus, no matter what your life situation, no matter what the trial or hardship may be. So it's costly, it's pure, it's also uh, referred to here as nard, or the King James translates it spike nard, and the reason why it's called spike nard is it's nardos in the Greek. It comes from the spike of a fragrant plant that grows on the hills and the banks of the Ganges River in India. It's the only place you can get this. So this perfume is, is exotic, it's expensive, it's genuine. One commentator wrote, early in the first century, Pliny the Elder remarked that the best ointment is preserved in alabaster, so it's in an alabaster jar, and the value of the perfume and its identification as nard suggests that it is a wealthy family heirloom that's passed on from one generation to another, usually from a mother to a daughter. Something more to understand about this, such an heirloom as Mary held on to there, as she had, was usually her dowry for marriage. And a mom or a dad might give it to a child, a young daughter, to set aside and to keep and to save and to hold on to because it could be sold rather easily. It was worth a great deal of money and would be that dowry for the woman to be married. It was literally Mary's hope chest. And she takes it and breaks the top of it and empties it out on Jesus. Well, she want to marry Him? In a way, you could say yes. He was her first love. He was the one that she was passionate for. He was the only man that she cared for. Well, not in a romantic way, but in a passionate, true, genuine way. This was the only man that she wanted to show her affection for. And so she dumps out what very likely was her dowry. Pours it out on the head of Jesus. What an outpouring of love. If you love Jesus, what are you willing to pour out for Him? What are you willing to give up for Him? How much of yourself? How much of your hope? How much of your future are you willing, as we just sang a few minutes ago, to just lay at His feet? To pour over His head to say, Jesus, I'm giving this all to You. Mary, in doing this, if this was her dowry, guess what? She put her future marriage in the hands of Jesus. Without concern. He'll take care of that. He'll look after those issues. I just want to show Him now how much... I love Him. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.14, many of you know this, the love of Christ controls us. And having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and He died for all, so they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. And we see this in Mary. We see this kind of genuine article faith and love even before Jesus' death. I think Mary got it. She got it. And I think she knew what she was doing. Which I'll explain in just a minute. But some don't. And you know this in your life. Some people just do not pick it up. All they can see is the expense. Some people look at churches and all they see is cost. 
I'll have to give up this and I'm not willing to do that. They're going to ask for my money and I don't want to get rid of that. They're going to ask me for my time. Well, my time is precious to me. And so was this perfume to Mary. Some people do not get it. And they were there at the party that night. But some were indignantly remarking to one another, why has this perfume been wasted? John tells us who led the charge. Yes, it was Judas. Judas Iscariot is the one who raised the issue. John 12.6, now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor. Why wasn't this money sold and given to the poor? Judas wasn't concerned about the poor, John says, because he was a thief. And he had the money box. And he used to pilfer what was going into it. And so that's why he raised the issue. And I love what Spurgeon says here. He says, I shall always feel obliged to Judas for figuring out the price of that box of costly nard at 300 denarii. He did it to blame her, but we will let his figure stand and think all the more of her the more he put down to the account of waste. I shall never have known what it cost, nor would you either if Judas had not marked it down in his pocketbook. So Judas protests. I think he protests too much. (laughs) Listen, gang, Judas' rejection of Mary's outpouring of love was, number two, an omen of waste. It was an omen of waste. He asked the question, why has this perfume been wasted? He impugns her character. You wasted this. This perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And they were scolding her. Why has this been wasted, he says. And in this moment, put yourself in the scene if you can. It is a moment of tenderness and appropriate affection. It is a beautiful gift that she is giving to him. And Judas pipes up and as if ruining the moment, calls it an absolute waste. And the Greek word for waste, Bible students note this, is apolia, or we translate it perdition. Perdition. Does that sound familiar? John 17, 12, Jesus is praying and He says, While I was with them, I was keeping them in Your name which You have given Me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the Son of perdition, so that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Jesus would later call Judas the Son of Waste. What a waste. What an absolute tragic waste of a life. Judas was there present when Jesus clearly laid out the the terms and conditions of discipleship. Back in Mark 8.34 when Jesus said, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. Judas was there. He heard that. He had been there for three years of Jesus' ministry. He had seen the 5,000 fed. He had seen the lepers healed. He had seen the blind receive their sight. He had seen Jesus walk on the water. He had seen the marvelous and the miraculous. And he had seen the tenderness of Jesus and the love of Jesus. Judas had been there. What a waste. Because all these words of Jesus fell on rocky soil and never penetrated the heart of Judas. And so he would become the son of perdition. He would say, why has this perfume become perdition? Waste. And he himself was the waste. Why did he miss it? Well, the bottom line is if you hold on to the world, your life will be a waste. And Judas was holding on tight. 
He was holding on to that money box. He was the treasurer. Why would Jesus choose Judas to be the treasurer? If Jesus knows the heart of every man, and He does, why would He choose Judas to be the treasurer? And I think every decision of Jesus for each of His apostles was to give them full opportunity to be redeemed. Hand the man the money box that he might be redeemed from the very sin that would drive him to draw out of that box. But Judas was holding on. John said in 1 John 2, verse 15, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Listen to me on this. I've really prayed about whether I should mention this or not. I'm going to mention this in in, in kind of a roundabout way. We all have opportunities in our lives. Opportunities to get involved in business. Opportunities to make money. And I need to say to each of you in this fellowship in particular, please, please don't love the world. Don't love the things of the world. If you're engaging in some business opportunity, do it for Jesus' sake. Do it for how that can benefit the kingdom. Don't do it because, hey, I can make a lot of bucks. Please be careful. I'll tell you what, I sit up here and and as a pastor, I know my heart. And I know how messed up I would be if I was given a lot of money. I would not handle it well. So don't do it. (laughs) All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, we're not talking about lust in terms of sexual lust. We're talking about the lust of the eyes. Wow, that's that's a great outfit. Oh, that's a beautiful car. What a great home. The lust of the eyes. And it is destroying the boastful pride of life. It's not from the Father. It is from the world. The world is passing away and also it's lust. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. Judas is on the edge of the crucifixion. He is at the last shot, the last week. And he chooses the world. And he clings to the world, not only ripping off money out of the box, but you know he will betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Because he's got to get more. It's all about the money. And tragically, this event is the life-defining mark for Judas. This is the one. Because immediately after this happened, look down in verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. That's the moment. When Jesus calls out Judas and says, No, don't get on to her for this. The son of perdition says, that is such a waste and I am sick and tired of this waste. And off he goes. He has made up his mind to betray his Lord and Savior. But what else happened when Judas protested this wasteful expense? Watch this, verse 5 again. He says this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And they were scolding her. Not he. They. They were on her case. They, it was groupthink all of a sudden. Mob mentality. Yeah. Yeah, Judas is right. Yeah, we could have sold that. All the people who were outside, we, we could do something with this. What a waste. Number three, an overt contention. An overt contention arose that night. Could have given that somewhere 
valuable, somewhere worthwhile. Well, I would ask the question looking back, what's more valuable than the brow of Jesus that was about to bear the crown of thorns? What more valuable thing to do than to anoint Jesus for His death? Now the they there in verse 5, I believe these guys, the disciples who joined in, probably were sincere. They heard Judas's words. Judas had an agenda. His agenda was already dark and wasted. It was devilish. We know where his heart was. The rest of the guys were like, yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, Judas is right. Listen, my friends, don't be too quick to join in with the loudest voices or the most contentious arguers. We see it happen all the time in the world. We see it happen in the church. Where someone starts to get really contentious and people don't want to cause a scene, so they just kind of join in and, and, and the church heads down a road that was not God's intention. Be careful with that. Contention can have a great influence until you find yourself caught up in controversy. And I'll tell you something that we have a tendency to do in our shepherd meetings. Not be contentious. In our shepherd meetings, when we begin to talk about things, we pray a lot. And when I'm sitting and I'm listening and just kind of the way I function, I want to hear everybody's opinion. I don't care if they're completely different. And oftentimes they are. And if we're going around and talking about these things, you know what I've learned over the years? I've learned to be careful and to be wary of those who are most loud and pushy and contentious. If the attitude is one of contention, I always... This is why Tom's not a shepherd anymore. (laughs) He was so... I'm sorry, brother. you you got to know, Tom is the least contentious person I know. Aren't you more willing, if you really stop and think about it, aren't you more at peace to take someone's opinion if they come to you with love and gentleness? So why do we get caught up in contention? Why is it that the loud, but why in our country is it that the minority are running things it's because they're so loud and everybody going kind of backs off. Oh yeah, well that's not a bad idea. Well what Judah said is not a bad idea. Why not this? Paul says in Romans 16 and 17, I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. Don't give heed to contention. He said, such men are slaves, not of our Lord Jesus Christ, but of their own appetites, and by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. you got Judas, and I believe you have 11 unsuspecting guys there who really weren't thinking about where his heart was coming from and what he was trying to do. How do you think this whole thing felt to Mary? She has just moved emotionally, spiritually, She realizes this is the moment and she gets that alabaster jar, breaks it, she's pouring it over his head, she's anointing him, she is worshiping Jesus. And all of a sudden, they get after her. All of a sudden, they are all on her back. She comes under attack for loving Jesus. In John 15, Jesus said in verse 18, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world... The world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world. And because of this, the world hates you. But this wasn't the world. These were the disciples. This was not the outside world. These were, this is where, not where persecution is supposed to come from. It's supposed to come from out there, not in here. 
These are fellow disciples. They knew Mary. She knew them. Ever been criticized by a fellow believer for loving Jesus too much? Let me spin the question for you. Have you ever criticized a fellow believer for loving Jesus too much? Oh, I wish he'd just put his hands down. I can't see the screen. And Rick's doing another new song, so I don't even know what the words are. Man, I wish she, her hallelujahs are too loud. She's kneeling down over that makes me a bit uncomfortable. You ever go home? <laughs> Husbands, wives, and say to your spouse, Did you see that guy? <laughs> Hope he knows we're not that kind of church. <laughs> it is easy to criticize someone who shows more love to Jesus than I do. And yet, our mentality's messed up. It is easy to label someone a fanatic simply because they appear more devoted to Jesus and it shames me. But the problem is not their heart, it's my heart. The problem was not with Mary and the love and the affection she was showing. The problem was with the guys in the room. And so I asked, what do you do if someone's love for Jesus embarrasses you or someone's love for Jesus bothers you? And the answer is very simple. Love Him more. Amen. If their love for Him is making you uncomfortable, then out-love them. What would happen if we just kept out-loving Jesus? Over, I mean, we'd be so out of control. <laughs> love Jesus more. And don't make it about the person. And if someone's affection or someone's worship is embarrassing to you, you know what? They're loving Jesus. Go back to this story. Think about Mary. This was an embarrassing moment. Guys are all you know, shooting the, shooting the breeze there. Sitting around the table, Martha's serving vigorously, which is, you know, great. I need some more of this, Martha, more of that. And they're hanging out, and Mary comes in and starts this religious act. It's like, oh, not church stuff. (laughs) We're at a party here. Come on. Mary was just loving Jesus. Well, verse 6 going on, Jesus takes her side, which makes me love him more. He says, let her alone. Why do you bother her? She's done a good deed to me. And then he says something that I've pondered for years. Perhaps you have as well. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you wish, you can do good to them. But you do not always have me. Number four. Suddenly we get hit with this obvious priority. An obvious priority. The poor, you will always have with you. And that's true, isn't it? And I think you all know that poverty will never be solved by the right economic plan, be it Republican or Democrat. And poverty will never be solved politically. It will never be solved even religiously. There's a big divide in the church today between what you would call uh, evangelicalism or the evangelical uh, approach and the social gospel. Well, the social gospel says... Don't worry about saving people. We just got to love people and we got to serve people and we've got to have, you know, soup kitchens out of our churches. We've got to do this, that, and the other. And by the way, the social gospel is biblical. There are people who say the Matthew 25 approach. Perhaps you've seen bumper stickers every now and then that just say Matthew 25. And did you know that that's what drove Barack Obama, part of what drove President Barack Obama to push for health care? Most Christians don't realize this is what Jesus said in Matthew 25. For the least of these, 
The more, what you do for the least of these. So we gotta do for the least of these. Now the problem is government's not the solution. The other problem is Matthew 25 is not talking about the poor, it's talking about Israel. But that's another Bible study for another time. (laughs) But the whole Matthew 25 thing is Christians who say our primary purpose on earth is to serve people and to love people and to care for the poor. Now the evangelicals say our primary purpose on earth is to preach the gospel. And Pastor Rick would say our primary purpose on earth is to glorify God by loving people and serving the poor and by preaching the gospel. Okay? Our primary purpose is always glorifying God, whatever we do. Amen. And I'm a little off track here. Where, oh, so an obvious priority. <laughs> Here's the problem of poverty. The reason why it can't be solved economically or politically or religiously, uh, religiously is because poverty is due to a single issue in this planet, and that is sin. And as long as there is sin in the world, there will be poverty in the world. Now here's the politically incorrect view. People are poor because they sin. Now let me tell you, that is true. People are poor because they sin. Idleness. Some people just don't want to work. Hey, you know, if I can sit down on the government dole and I can make more than I can if I go out and get a minimum wage job, why would I go get a job? Just keep it coming. Idleness, addictions bring about poverty. Other issues that that poor people bring upon themselves. And that's true. That's part of the reason why there's poverty in the world. But the politically correct reason is, is also true. There is poverty because we live in a world of greed and corruption and abuse and a lack of compassion. That's absolutely true too. You know, the whole Wall Street thing and the whole... I mean, if people try to side up one or the other, the truth is there's sin in the world. Whether it's my sin against somebody else causing them harm or their sin choices that cause them harm, it's one big kind of mixed up mess, but it all comes back to sin. Sin is the issue. Sin is what drives poverty. And so until Jesus comes and sets things right, the poor we will always have with us. So what do we do? Well, Jesus tells us, whenever you wish, you can do good to them. So let's do that. Let's do that. And we don't sit around and and wonder, is this person's poverty self-inflicted? Because if it is, we won't serve them. If they sin and cause their poverty, we're out. You're on your own, loser. (coughs) How would you have liked that when you were outside of Christ? Whether someone's poverty is self-inflicted or inflicted by the sin of others, it is our responsibility in Jesus Christ to do good to them for the purpose of bringing them to Jesus. Period. That is the need of the poor. The need of the poor and the rich and everyone in between is Jesus Himself, which should tell us something, and that is the obvious priority. Listen, the obvious priority of Jesus' followers is not the poor. The obvious priority of Jesus' followers is Jesus. Because if if He's our priority, then yes, we're going to care for the poor. We're going to care for those who have less than perhaps we do. And we're going to care for those who have more than we do as well. Because Jesus is the priority. Judas was not the priority here. He raises the poor as a distraction and a dodge to the worship of Jesus. He's completely off. Honestly, I want to know why Jesus didn't nail Judas to the wall right there. 
You know, why don't you just hammer him? I know what you're up to, Mr. Sticky Fingers. Someone get the box. Get the box. We're going to count the money right now, dude. See, this is my thinking. Hand it over. Clean out your locker. You're gone. Your history. You're toast. Bye-bye. And Jesus doesn't do that. He knew what was going on. John 2.25 tells us he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man, but it wasn't about Judas, so he didn't make it about Judas in that moment. And it wasn't about the poor, so Jesus didn't make it about the poor in that moment. This whole thing, Jesus brings it back to the obvious priority, which was Jesus Christ himself. Don't distract. Don't get off base. Keep it about Jesus, and He does that. And in verse 8, He says, She has done what she could. She's anointed my body beforehand for the burial. Wait, what? What? (laughs) Burial? Burial who? When Jesus said this, we don't know how the disciples reacted. We have no comment in any of the Gospels as to how they responded when He says, She has done this for my burial. Was there a shock in the room? (gasps) You know? Was it quiet? Like, Oh no, he's talking about that again. How do they react? I have no idea. But I can almost guarantee no one was thinking that his death was imminent in that room that night but Mary. I think Mary was. I really do. Are you saying that Mary knew or believed Jesus about his impending death? The twelve disciples didn't even understand. How could she... How could Mary have known that this death was imminent, that this death was happening? Is it possible, I raise the question, is it possible that she did in fact anoint Jesus for His burial? That this was on her mind, not just on Jesus' mind. That somehow this was in her heart. How could she possibly know that? She had a unique perspective. She had a different perspective than anyone else there that night. This is the Mary in Luke 10 who sat at Jesus' feet. This is the Mary, John 11, who fell at Jesus' feet. This is now the Mary, John 12 tells us, who wipes Jesus' feet with her hair. Do you realize in every single instance that we see Mary in the Scriptures, she is at Jesus' feet? No wonder she had a perspective that no one else had. Mary was, and this is number five, an observant worshiper. An observant worshiper. Those who listen at Jesus' feet will always hear Jesus' heart. Jesus had been talking about the cross. You know that. We've been over this. Going through the Gospel of Mark. We know beginning at Caesarea Philippi and making His way with the apostles all the way down to Jerusalem, Jesus was doing cross training. Was talking about His coming death. Was saying, we're going up to Jerusalem, guys, and when we get there, I'm going to die. He said it in no uncertain terms, absolutely clear. They had heard it over and over and over. But they weren't getting it. Why? Because they were not yet at the place Mary was, and that is worshiping at His feet. And we keep seeing her in that same place, down at His feet, worshiping Jesus. And I believe she knew what she was doing. Any observant worshiper today, by the way, should recognize exactly what Mary did, that something is imminent. She recognized His imminent death. We should recognize His imminent return. If we are worshiping at His feet, then that should be constantly on our mind. It could be today. 
It could be today. And we should be those who are aware of it and not surprised by it. Mary gave Jesus this amazing anointing for his burial. And this is how he describes her act. This is just great. He says in verse 8 again, she's done what she could. She's done what she could. She didn't go get on Amazon and buy the deal of the day. You know, to show her love for Jesus. She didn't go out and pick out a nice Seder sweater from Macy's. Mary had the perfume. She had it there. And with his burial at hand, she gave what she could. And so in this way, she's just like the widow at the temple treasury. She gave what she had. She gave it openly. She gave it honestly. She did what she could do. Her outpouring of love didn't come from that alabaster vial. It came from her heart, which was already overflowing. Romans 5.5 5 says, The love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And so if the love of God is poured out into our hearts, how much more should we have that same outpouring of God's love? And Mary just has this outpouring from the love that was already present in her. But she gave what she had. Peter didn't have perfume to give. You know, John didn't have an alabaster vial to break open. Andrew didn't. None of the disciples had these things. And I read this and I think, had I been there, I wouldn't have had the perfume either. I can't do what Mary did. Matter of fact, I can't do a lot of things. There's stuff that you all do I can't do. I don't have that sensibility. I don't have that that gifting. I don't have that ability. I don't have that talent. But I'll tell you what I can do. I can do what I can do for Jesus. Do you get what I'm getting at here? You can do what you can do. And your gift and someone else's gift, completely different gift. Just do what you have. Give what you have to give. Do what you're able to do by the grace of God. And don't worry about what someone else is doing or how they give. Do you have the love of Christ outpoured in your heart? Then pour it out. Pour it out. Verse 9 tells us, Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. I'm down in the Kadron Valley in Jerusalem. Between the Mount of Olives and, and the Temple Mount, there's a huge tomb. Very impressive. It's a memorial, and it's called Absalom's Tomb. And a few of us wandered down this path, down into the Kadron this last time, and, and went over and saw Absalom's Tomb, carved out of rock. It's, it was obviously, when it was carved, very ornate and, and, and beautiful, and kind of a monument to the person who carved it. Absalom's Tomb, problem is, it dates back to the first century. So it can't be Absalom's tomb, because Absalom was David's son and died a thousand years before that. So this tomb, we don't know who's buried there. Some wealthy guy, you know, who, who thought, I'm going to leave my mark. I'm going to make sure the world remembers who I am. And no one knows. <laughs> no idea. <laughs> But Mary is remembered for this simple and profound act of love and devotion to this very day. Isn't that great? Why do we remember her? Because of her outpouring of love for Jesus. And that's a memorial stone worth putting up. Let's stand up together.
the uh, smell of Mary's perfume elicited some sharp reactions in the room that day. Loving Jesus always will. Loving Jesus will always cause reaction. It will cause reaction from those who think it's a bad idea to be so demonstrative in your love, to be so outspoken, to be so, you know, out there. And there will be those who are moved by that love. Jesus Himself is always touched when someone just expresses love for Him. But I think about this moment, and John tells us Mary poured the perfume out on Jesus' head, and it obviously ran down all over His robes and got down on His feet. The whole house would have smelled like this amazing spikenard. And John tells us that Mary did, in fact, get down on her hands and knees and wipe the perfume off his feet with her hair. And the marvelous thing about that is that for the whole rest of the night, two people would smell the same. Jesus and Mary. She would smell like him all night long. And for some, that odor was untenable. Judas smells that odor and it drives him right out of the house into the darkness can't stand it. The rest of the disciples stayed and were there and understood what Jesus was trying to say. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.15, we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one an aroma from death to death and to the other an aroma from life to life. And I just want to leave you with this question. And that is, what does the aroma of Christ do to you this morning? What does the smell do to you? Lord Jesus, I love you so much. I am so thankful that you loved me first. For the outpouring of your love is far greater than anything any of us can or will ever do. Even Mary's precious gift is nothing in comparison to the blood that was poured out of the cross just days later. And we are recipients of your blood poured out as if it were perfume over our heads and and dripping down onto our shoulders and our bodies and our feet and covering us and washing us clean of our sin. And we now bear, Lord Jesus, your aroma in our lives. May we not be embarrassed by it. But may we walk joyfully and proclaiming and understanding that this aroma will cause reaction. I pray, Lord Jesus, that it will cause a reaction today. And that if there's anyone here this hour or next hour who smells an aroma of death, they will be shocked out of their dullness of thinking and into a pure and genuine faith. Faith in Jesus. And I pray for those who just... They cannot get enough of your aroma, Jesus. That we would live that way. That we would be worshipers at your feet. Not worrying about what the contentious say. Not caught up in all of the objections. But just worshiping you with our lives. In Jesus' name, Amen.